Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 128 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. On this episode of the podcast, we hear from a musician with a fascinating story. Terry Edwards, a man who played trumpet, sax, guitar, keys, with some incredible artists, including Nick Cave, Gallon Drunk, The Jesus and Mary Chain, PJ Harvey, and Tom Waits. He was a founding member of the Higsons and has performed and released records as a solo artist with and without his band, The Scapegoats. I'd encourage you to check out his covers, EPs, imaginative versions of music by the likes of The Fall, Miles Davis, The Damned, The Sex Pistols, The Clash, and the brilliant album My Wife Doesn't Understand Me, a trailblazing, genre-busting classic which paved the way for the British punk jazz movement that followed in its wake in the 90s. And when we talk about Mr. Weller, you will find Terry playing on the album Wake Up The Nation. Another really interesting guest. Let's get into it. Terry Edwards, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Hey, look, lovely to have you on. But look, I don't know where to start. I mean, we're talking trumpet, flugelhorn, sax, guitar, keys. You're a writer, arranger, performer, even a vocalist. I mean, there's no end to your talents, my friend. You missed my midlife crisis instrument, which is the flute, which I took up when I turned 50. <laughs> I always try to avoid talking about the flutes. <laughs> well, I love that. At 50 years old, you're like, I've got to learn something new. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this love of music, where does it come from? Is it something that was instilled in you as a youngster with your parents, or is it something that you discovered at school? What, but um, where did you get this bug from? A little bit of all those things, really. Um, yeah, I wasn't really pushed into it, but I did. My mother's side of the family is quite musical. So there was a piano in the house. Her sister was a piano teacher. She taught me piano. Her parents played music. So it was kind of around, but it was never thrust down our throats to to do. In fact, what what happened was, of course, you know, I'm the the generation that wanted to be Jeff Hurst and score a hat trick for England at the (laughs) Wembley. Yeah. And uh, I broke my leg when I was five. So clearly I couldn't run after a ball. 
at that time. And so I was just got interested in the piano because I was housebound, as it were, you know, with a, with a great big cast on my leg. And so it kind of started there. Although I was, I did like the sound of, of music, not never ever the musical. Um, but I, I was just interested in the. <laughs> not even at Christmas. Come on. <laughs> no, no, really. Not ever. <laughs> Apparently I could sing in tune from a very early age, like one, one or two. I could. I could repeat tunes and stuff probably better than I can now. <laughs> yeah, what, what um, happens? <laughs> back to the days of when there were only three channels on the on the TV and uh, things. On I used to love hearing the acoustic guitar, even in the hands of Val Dunican. You know, just <laughs> something coming through the the telly or whatever at a very early age. I just was interested in the noise. So I guess that's all part of it. I was uh, I was encouraged uh, to, to play, you know, once I'd shown an interest in it. The multi-instrumentalism, I kind of like to think it's something to do with my dad always holding down loads of jobs at the same time. So that's what I do. I hold down loads of jobs at the same time. Well, I guess the more you can play, the more value what you are to artists if you're a session musician or you're making your own stuff as well, right? You can get ideas down quite quickly as well. Because, you, you know, if you want to hear a, a horn section sound, I can multi-track it up reasonably quickly so that you get the idea of what it will sound like. But as my mate Pete Saunders, who was the um, keyboards player in Dexys originally, he always says when we're working together, thing is, Terry, you're very good value for money. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that probably helps, you know, if you're going on the road and you can do a couple of instruments and it's only one hotel room, I guess I'm good value for money. Now, your start out in bands um, and performing like live would have been around the time of the jam and, and Weller and punk and all that as a founding member of the Higsons. So this was a punk funk band signed to Jerry Demmer's label, um, Two Tone, eventually. And obviously people will have heard of Charlie Higson, which I guess is where the name comes from. It'd be a bit odd if it hadn't, but go for the fast show and all that kind of thing. And I was trying to think this morning, uh, there was another member of our podcast who was in the Higsons. I'm trying to remember who it was. Was it a member of Jules' band? I'll have to check the list while we're talking. But where did that come, where did that come from? How did you get involved in that? And were you a jam fan? Were you a, a punk fan? Was that your world? Before I answer your second question, I think the first one is Phil Vcock, the sax player. Oh, Phil yes. played on a couple of Higson's He wasn't a member of the band, but he had a band called The Larks and they supported the Higson's. That's right. Well. It was Phil. Bless him. Hello, Phil. Thank you. Yes. You're right. Absolutely. Yes. Second yeah. question then. Yeah. So well, second question. Um, I, I kind of side a little bit with Robert Elms here in that I'm more of a Star Council fan than a Jam fan. It's a, it's not a war or anything. It's not like <laughs> driving a line down. You don't have to pick field. sides. You're right. But yeah. yeah, that sort of thing. But um, that kind of appealed to me a bit more. I guess that's, is that the horn sections and that kind of sound being your up your street a bit more then? And also, also I think from early days of punk, you know, I know that it's chronologically it's it's correct to think of the jams being, you know, in the city came out in 77. And I know it's not a million miles, you know, it's a guitar, bass, drums and in, in the right corner. But it wasn't really punk to me. You know, so the damned were punk, fast, furious and doing something. The jam were um, still had a foot in the in the old school ways of you know you could hear the 60s influences more in in the jam than you could in the um tear up the rule books punk rock thing so yeah, and i guess that soul and the r&b influences yeah, so and the I, motown I, floods um, through doesn't it i know that sort of you know it's different because you, we have the benefit of hindsight now but i think in the the thrust of the time the, there was definitely a slight difference between the mod the new mod and the sort of new punk things 
And, wh- and where did you sit? Where, what was your um, influence, your love of music, your image and your, you know, where did, you con- <laughs> did you consider yourself in one of those kind of camps? Well, of course, you know, being, being the generation that I'm, you know, punk didn't really, you know, there wasn't a, a year zero. There is obviously for, um, for writers, they think it's a great thing to have a year zero. People were listening to uh, other stuff, who, people who formed the Sex Pistols and the Damned and the Clash and everything. Of course they were listening to music before punk because punk hadn't happened, yeah. you know. So I'm of that generation as well. So, of course, I was learning guitar, playing Beatles songs. Trumpet and piano were more classical. I read the music and did the exams, whereas piano and saxophone, I could already read the music, but I didn't do the exams. So they sort of fell into a different part for me, a different place for me. I know people always say, oh, I listen to loads of different music. And yes, we all do. There are certain bits that we like more than others, though, I think. Otherwise, everything would be beige, wouldn't it? There are many artists that I want to dig into you working with. Yeah, the CV is pretty impressive, to say the least. As it's the Paul Weller fan podcast, we should focus on the Weller bit first. And I'm guessing this is your first connection with Paul, which is this beauty here, Wake Up The Nation 2010. Had you had any connection, any dealings with Mr. Weller before being on that album? We'd met Briefly, in a bar somewhere in the West End, and I was with a couple of Higsons, and he was with Mick Tolbert. It wasn't at a gig or anything. I think we just happened to be in a bar, and it was shortly after or around the time of Live Aid. And actually, I don't think Live Aid had happened. I think the, the record had happened. Feed the World had happened. And there was, um, mooted by one or two of the, like, the serious drinking or Higson's people were saying, well, it'd be good to do an indie one of these, you know. And we chatted a little bit about that. Things get mentioned over a couple of drinks. And one of them was, you know, why not do a, a band aid kind of single, but with, with indie people doing it? And he said, oh, if you want some guitaring, I'm up for it. And of course, Nothing ever happened. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Um, so we had met, but it was, just, you know, it was just a social occasion and we didn't really talk about music that much apart from the sort of a five minute encounter. But you're right that, yeah, that was the first thing I'd, I'd done with him. And, um, it was actually via that, that album was largely, if not entirely co-written with Simon Dine. Simon works at Go Discs. He was a neighbor of mine. He lived down the road from me and he shared a house with someone else that I knew. So I'd known him for quite a while, separate from, you know, earlier than this. And as happens when you've been doing this for a little bit of time, people go, oh, we need a saxophone on this. I know Terry, he can do it. So that's really what happened. So I played baritone on one track and I think flugelhorn on another on Wake Up The Nation. It's interesting how Simon was working with Paul because, and funny enough, in the latest record collector um, I was reading this morning, he's mentioned uh, and this album and the fact that he'd kind of give Paul these little snippets of sound and, the, and these little sound collages and suddenly Paul was writing music in a very different way to how he was writing music in the, the Jam and the Style Council where he'd flesh everything out at home on an acoustic guitar or piano, write the lyrics in full and he'd take something into the studio is pretty fully fleshed out really and you know it's ready to go and almost ready to be recorded whereas by the time we're into 22 dreams and wake up the nation which simon was working with him on it sounds like it was much more kind of taking in some rough ideas or some rough sketches into the studio but a lot of it winging it i mean on this album he was talking about kind of making up the lyrics as he went along like in a live studio environment yeah i I can imagine obviously by the time i came in to do my bits i was replacing samples somewhere so the songs were written and and ready and everything but Simon's way of working was sampling things, taking sounds and putting things together. And he's not a songwriter in that sense. I, I think he can, he does play the guitar, but he's not, as we were talking earlier about the, the old school way of, of writing songs, you know, the small faces way, the who way of doing it. You were the bloke, usually a bloke, um, who, who had the guitar and 
strum the chords and that was how he did and and Paul's very much of that that's the way he works that's the way he's always written songs but Simon has never written them like that he's always taken bits and pieces and sort of been been a bit of a magpie in a certain certain way but also just hearing things that other people don't hear when he puts stuff together I mean what he'd done previously was Noonday Underground I don't know if you've heard Mm, yes yeah yeah great love it love really good stuff you know but of course, the things he was using, some of the drum samples and stuff, they're very much that 60s feel. He likes that that sound. And with Jim Beatty, who he was working with from Spiria Rex, who were an offshoot of Primal Screen, that was very much what they were into. It was a, a new way of writing things. All I'm doing is agreeing with you here. <laughs> well, those, are, those are my favourite guests on the podcast. <laughs> the funny thing is, as a listener to, to Paul and as a listener, it's not just Paul, you know, any album, you pick up the album and you look at the credits and you look at who's performing on those songs, you know, as much as you're reading the lyrics and you're listening to the sounds and stuff. And in your head, it's inevitable that you look at the lineup and you go, God, look at them all amazing in the studio together. You forget that these, you know, everything's layered up and it's Pro Tours and people are kind of adding bits at different stages through this recording process because in your head it's kind of like man this is like a, a mega super group so when you talk about like wake up the nation we've got bev bevan on drums for goodness sake we've got you know stevie craddock on percussion we've got obviously paul and we've got you on sax on that one an interesting story there because bev bevan's on drums on the track that i played on i've never met him you know. <laughs> um but there's a uh, clem Catini is another drummer who's on the record you're acquainted with clem are you the sort i'm aware of clem yeah, yeah. But he's not been on the podcast so. basically the, the british hal blaine really he played on so many things and i met him at um the dublin castle when he was doing um a rock and roll book club thing because a biography of him had come out i think co-written with him and two other writers and there they were and he he played on um shaking all over johnny kid and the pirates which was number one the day I was born. <laughs> oh, nice. So I, set, so I in, introduced myself or was introduced to, to him. We had a chat with him. He's a really lovely guy. And I told him that and said, and 50 years later, we played on the same album, not on the same track, but we're on the same album, which is just, I just love that. Just astonishing. And bless him, a couple of months later, he came to see the Near Jazz Experience play with, you know, so he's been to see me play now. As well. Oh, that's and wicked. It's such a sweet thing, the way that all these, these things sort of tie together. That's, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, his career is incredible, Clem, wasn't it? I mean, gosh, I have, I have reached out, but I haven't managed to track it down. But yeah, incredible. But yeah, in your head, you're thinking this is a super group and you're all in the studio together. But clearly, <laughs> clearly that didn't happen, right? <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and the same with, so the other track that you're on is Grasp and Still Connect. I mean, I really love this album. It doesn't get talked about by many as a kind of favorite, but it's really interesting because uh, let me ask you about that track festival. So Grasp and Still, Still Connect is, you know, Steve Pilgrim on drums. It's the Weller band that we know and love of recent years. Andy Croft's on guitar as well. And you on, uh, uh, it says horns. So is it a variety of different horns? Can you remember? I think it was just the flugelhorn. Okay. Yeah. And one or two of those people were in the control room when I did it, but the the track was finished. I was just um, re- replacing a sample or just doing literally what the tune that was in there. Were both of these sessions in one day? Were you down, yeah, at, Black, yeah. you were down at Black Barn yeah. Studios in Ripley? Indeed, yeah. Yeah. Um, which I've been to a couple of times since because I play with Rhoda Dakar in her band. She's, uh, she and Paul have a very good relationship. He lets her use the studio when he's not in there. So we have to dash in and do stuff very quickly. And so I've been there, um, been in the studio a couple of times. It's really enjoyable. It's quite a great place to be. And of course, largely analog gear. And so, you know, you sort of, you look around and there are, there are, there's more than one Hammond organ in the 
mm. that sort of thing. You know, it's uh, no, it's a good place to work. Good sound you get there, and and yeah, he's been very generous with uh, studio time for us to record a couple of EPs. The Low Tech Four, Rhoda Dakar on the Low Tech Four. Rhoda's been on the podcast, and she was right. fabulous, an absolutely yeah. brilliant guest. I loved her. Don't get any radio silence with Rhoda, mm. do you? <laughs> I think I only asked three questions. You're right. <laughs> it's a bit like Billy Bragg. It was great. Um, and what's Paul like in the studio environment? Was it like, I mean, you were literally replacing the sounds that were already there. So I'm guessing he's not giving means to give too much direction, but, but pretty relaxed. Um, very relaxed. And, uh, in fact, for Wake Up the Nation, he wasn't there. He came oh. in a bit, little bit later. I don't know if I was early or <laughs> I, I just went in and did my job and everyone was happy. That was a number two album, I think I'm right in saying. And yes, damn it. <laughs> Sorry about that. I mean, you have had a number one though, right? Just, so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but back in the day, here it is, recording produced by Simon Dye and Paul Weller, Wake Up the Nation. So this was 2010. And you thought Paul was happy. You know, it was Mercury nominated, didn't win. I know I remember him being interviewed and being pretty pissed off about the fact that he didn't win because he thought he should have done. And being really happy about that album at the time. And, and live, they were incredible. I remember watching um, Five Nights at the Royal Albert Hall. I went along for those gigs. Bruce Fox and played with him. Kelly Jones and the Stereophonics. Amazing. He was like, really, really, it felt like he was really behind that album, really happy with that album. Mm. And, then, and then 2020, we get this. I don't know if you even know about this. The album's remixed and it's re-released and it's a new version because he says he wasn't quite happy the first time around. Are you aware of that? Did you know it was coming back out? Um, well, funnily enough, I went to um, one of the shows that Madness did at the Roundhouse. They did three nights in a row. Um, and this was December 2019, I guess it has to be. Yeah. So, um, but Paul was in the, um, was in the bar very briefly backstage, um, at the end of the show. And so I reintroduced myself to him because we had only fleetingly met a couple of times and said, Oh, Terry, I was on Wake Up the Nation. And he told me it was being reissued, a 10th anniversary issue of it. So I knew that it was going to come out, <laughs> but that was about it. I don't have the new version. And uh, so am I still on it? Well, I thought so. I've not checked. I've checked sleep <laughs> <laughs> that would be quite funny. There were two things we took off because we really didn't like them. Yeah. If you're not, then I, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, 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 there'll be radio silence here. No, you're <laughs> still on. You're still on. <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> oh, dear, that's funny. I hadn't thought about that. That would have been really awkward. <laughs> you're, you're still on both tracks, Terry. Thank goodness. Very good. Yeah, interesting, because Paul's famously not somebody who revisits old stuff very often. Hmm. And the fact to, uh, I don't think ever in his career have we had a remix, a, a re-versioning of an album. I know he's not replayed anything on it, but it's interesting that he's kind of gone back and, and you know, obviously a COVID project of kind of thinking, well, no, but no, so no, it, was done, it was done pre-COVID, right? It was released during COVID, but yeah. Well, certainly the idea was there, whether yeah. it had been done when we had the conversation, but he said it was, and, but I guess they must have been quite far down the road for it to, to come out for the end yeah. of the date. So I, I turned 50 a few months after the, after the album was out. And uh, so my copy of it is, is signed to me on my 50th from Paul. Oh, nice. I'm sorry, oh, I don't have it to hand. I could have. <laughs> well, it's all right. It's, it's, it's an audio podcast. We'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll pretend you've held it up for me. One, I mean, it's lovely to have it on vinyl because I couldn't afford the original vinyl these days. Um, you know, so, so the re-releases are always quite nice. Now, talk to me about you as a solo artist and of your own thing. And then I want to quiz you about some of the other, you mentioned Madness. We're going to come back to that, but some mm. of the other amazing artists that you've played with as well. But for you, for your own thing, what does that give you, um, uh, producing your own stuff that you don't get from working with others? I think it's finding a home for the orphans. You know, that Tom Waits brought out those reissues of things that hadn't been on albums proper and were just odds and sods. And I find that I write 
things or get ideas for things that aren't in a sense complete in albums and they just they're ideas that are maybe i guess you know being children of single you know being someone who bought singles and eps and things like that maybe i think of things in terms of smaller groupings rather than the full album hence the first solo things being those cover versions which um were terry edwards plays the music of jim and william reed because i've recorded for mary chain things and funnily enough that 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 thing of not being in a band is is interesting because you're almost embarrassed to put your own name on things because mm. before you could be one of the Higsons, one of the gang, one of somebody else, you know, you'd be in this group of things. Well, as soon as you put your own name on it, you really are just out there on your own. <laughs> so I had to make jokey titles like plays the music of Terrier, but salutes the magic of the fall, you know, to in attempt to deflect the, uh, the attention away from your own name. Yeah. <laughs> well, even the fact that it's, you know, it's Terry Edwards and the scapegoats, it's a bit Noel Gallagher as flying birds. You know, you kind of go, why is it he just Noel Gallagher? There was a reason for that really is because I, I did release singles that I did everything on. And the scapegoats was a band with three other guys in it who contributed to it. So it wouldn't be fair to say that it was me right. when, it, when the band needed an identity, as was pointed out to me by the bass player, Jen. So, <laughs> but, fair enough. But he, was, he was also quite sensible about that because he said, if you just put your name up there, nobody knows if you've got a band or if you're there solo or whatever. So it makes sense to do that. It doesn't make sense in terms of Spotify and the internet these days, because Every band that has a slightly different thing is a different entity, according to the internet. Yeah. So if you look at Discogs and you see Terry Edwards, you don't find Terry Edwards and the scapegoats in the same grouping. You know, it's, it's very annoying. <laughs> well, it's mad, isn't it? But also the other thing's true whereby, I don't know if you know Billy Sullivan. So Billy Sullivan was a, an artist in the band called the Spitfires. He's now going solo. And the reason I mention it is, the two reasons I mention it, one, Simon Dine is the producer on it. So there's that oh, lovely yeah. connection there as well. Um, but if you go onto um, Amazon Music, for instance, and type in Billy Sullivan, you get all the other Billy Sullivans at the same time, in which there are lots. Because it doesn't seem when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door go to bluenile.com and use promo code listen to get 50 dollars off your purchase of 500 or more that's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. To want to uh, you know, split out artists. And I would imagine Terry <laughs> Edwards is quite a common name as well, isn't it? Oh, yes. It's been hilarious until just recently. I have managed to um, extricate myself from the, uh, the very lovely Terry Edwards, the director of um, London Voices and, you know, a chorister and beautiful bass voice. Sadly, we lost him earlier this year. I did manage to meet him once. And we, we were rather amused that you know people would phone me up and or get in touch with me to see if I could arrange a, a choir because I was the one who'd done 
the mission, the soundtrack to the mission, <laughs> and had worked with Pavarotti. And uh, and I, I don't know if the boot was on the other foot quite so often, you know, if he got calls to... Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know. So the Mary Chain, when you did stuff with Jesus and Mary Chain, I don't think I did that. <laughs> Brother Terry Edwards, um, you occasionally find who played with Clifford T. Ward. He was a bass player. And there's a country and western singer from East Anglia, and we don't look alike at all. And you see a record of him with uh, Terry Edwards, the 12th of Never, or whatever it is, <laughs> and he's in a poncho, white beard, and all, all this stuff. And you just think, ah, that's frightening. In fact, Simon Dine alerted me to this chat. That's quite funny. But I've managed to, on Spotify to split myself away from them finally. But it does take forever. But there must also be some people who are in record shops are going, oh my God, I've not got this one from Terry. I must let me get this. Oh, this is, <laughs> this is a, and I get home going, my goodness me, he's taking a different direction here. As you were saying that, I was obviously having to cross out things that are on my research here. For that. I shouldn't ask you about Pavarotti then. I've made a note of that or the mission. Okay. Well um, there's a fella linked to the jam on this podcast multiple times. It's come up in this and um, and seemed to go to every punk gig back in the day, every punk gig going. And I think even discovered the jam and recommended them to Chris Parry from what I remember, who signed them to Polydor, which is Shane McGowan. I have to ask you about Shane McGowan. Weren't you musical director for his 60th birthday? I was indeed, yeah. No one was more surprised than me. The guy who programs the music at the National Concert Hall in Dublin, Gary Sheehan, he emailed me about this project. And I knew that he hadn't got the wrong Terry Edwards. <laughs> I wanted the country of West. was actually going for me. It's one of those kind of nice things where um, somebody sees something in you that you don't see in yourself. He'd known of me playing with Gallon Drunk and he'd seen me playing in Gallon Drunk in Cork when he lived down, you know, a younger man and a, a young fan down there. So he knew what I did and he knew that some of the bigger shows that I did, like the, the revisitors, things like Swordfish Trombones revisited, the music of David Lynch revisited with a pretty high notch band of, you know, a core band plus me, in <laughs> it with various, various solos. So he knew that I did that. He knew that I played with Nick Cave and wasn't uncomfortable playing the bigger shows and those sorts of things. He asked me to, to do this and uh, we had a chat like, like we're doing on Zoom now and talking about all these things. And I said, can I just get back to you in a couple of days about this and have a think about it? Because I'm from Essex. I don't have any Irish blood in me, as far as I know. And I've not done any traditional Irish music or that sort of thing. So I was wondering, why was I put up for them? And I thought there might be somebody better placed to do this. And I thought this is a really good, <laughs> really good opportunity to do something great. So I, I asked him, why, why did you uh, light upon me? And he said, when Nick Cave walked into the rehearsal room, I wanted him to feel comfortable like he was in safe hands. And I realized that actually the style of music wasn't the, the important thing. It was putting the right headmaster in charge of the school, you know? So, <laughs> so um, he, he just knew that I could get the, the best out of the musicians, was diplomatic with the soloists, could, could cover a lot of bases because I do work in a lot of different genres of music. That was something that I didn't realize in myself. And funny enough, having worked with a guy called Bent Clausen, who's a Danish musician, he was the musical director for a couple of the Tom Waits theatre pieces, Alice and Blood Money, and then um, The Black Rider, which I was in the band for. And he was telling me about, he auditioned to be in a band or in the band for one of these things. And he got called back on it. And Waits thought that he obviously is a good musician and could do the percussion work, tune percussion, which is 
what he thought he was up for, but he thought that he would actually be able to pull the musicians together. I kind of thought that's what it is. Somebody sees something in you that you don't know in yourself. Yeah, I love that. And Gary's got me to do one or two things since then as well. So I guess I must do something right. Well, look, it's a pretty impressive list for the birthday party, the celebrations, but it's also, um, if you're, if you're the headmaster, these are not a bad list of pupils, really. Let's be honest with you. <laughs> so you mentioned Nick Cave, um, Imelda May, Bono, Sinead O'Connor, Johnny Depp, Sharon Shannon. I mean, my God, this is incredible. Yeah, so it's, it was quite a, a, a good name drop of a list, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Now, let's also talk, you mentioned Madness, and then there are people like him, Billy Bragg, I mentioned earlier on, and you've worked with Billy on a few albums, Julian Cope, Nick Cave we've mentioned. And there are people like that who, it seems to me, like yourself, like music is obviously just in the blood. And Whilst they might do different things, I know Suggs is doing like a stage show and stuff like that. They always steer back to it. They can't kind of avoid it. And there's this kind of a bit like Paul, there's this longevity, this kind of desire to keep performing, keep creating new music. And they're all creating new music all the time. What have they got in common that kind of drives them forward? And, and you know, what, what do you see as the similarities between a Suggs and a Nick Cave and a Weller and a Tom Waits? I think it is that, that desire to, to find something new to keep. I think the enjoyment of music is the one thing. I mean, you, you don't, um, there comes to a point where all the people you're talking about are comfortably off financially, I would say, to a greater or lesser degree. So it's clearly not for the money. And I think because all these people have been on the front cover of enough magazines and probably can't go on the tube if they wanted to and all that sort of thing. So it's clearly not for the fame either or the ego. I don't think artists of a certain caliber there's absolutely no reason in the world financially why paul mccartney should ever write another song but i don't think he can stop you know because he observes things and he wants to it just makes you want to do it and i can't like you said how do you get how did you start off playing music and what did you do and in a sense i don't really know but i know that i don't do anything else and i don't want to do anything else and it must be the sheer enjoyment of it despite all the other things you can complain about straight after covid a trumpet player mate of mine nick etwell said he'd, he'd got his first couple of gigs and he said oh and there's a, a thing where we've got to play loads of motown stuff and loads of stack things and there's a trumpet player it's all high stuff he said it just feels like you're being punched in the mouth for two hours <laughs> no, all stuff. He said, anyway how do you get a musician to complain Give him a gig. <laughs> so for all the stories you hear about, oh, dear God, and then I had to do this. I had two hours sleep and had to get a plane to go and do this, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it's actually because you like playing the music. You would do yeah. it anyway. <laughs> and it also it reminds me, there's a great, there was a great interview with David Bailey, the photographer. You're well into his 60s, knocking on the door of 70, I think, when his, this was being done. And he was going out with his cameras and they were saying, why do you do this? You know, he'd done... All, he's got all of the um, the Twiggies and the Michael Caines and all those from the 60s and onwards. And, uh, you know, he's, he wouldn't need it for the money. And he said, why do you go out with your camera? And he said, well, I might just find something. And I just think that's what we all do. We're just looking for that something that we haven't done before with our 12 notes, with our Hasselblad camera or whatever we're using. You might just find that thing you've been looking for for the last 40 years. And you might have found it many times in many places but you might find it in that other place you hadn't expected to nice. and i think that's why we do it and i think that's why they do it there's a um honorary councillor so the star council had these um so i guess you know people who joined the band session musicians and go on tour and stuff steve sedelnik uh, joined us on the podcast who talks about 
Um, oh, well, I asked him about an artist that I really love as well, David Gray. He talks about those early albums that he was part of as well. And you were the string arranger on Babylon. Was that right? It's true. That is true. That's incredible. I mean, what a song, my God. <laughs> I know. I, I was in the in the van with Gallon Drunk going around somewhere around Europe and the bass player was uh, also around a recording studio. So he had a copy of Sound on Sound magazine and there was a breakdown of recording that track in there. There was also saying, Terry, did, did you do the strings on Babylon? <laughs> he didn't know, but why should he? You know, but it was, yeah. So yeah, it's one of those things that, yes, I do. And I remember hearing it on the radio all the time. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I was doing breakfast shows at that time, and we'd play that every morning. I mean, it was massive. It was in the charts forever, it seemed. And that version of it wasn't on the album. It was just done as a single. You mentioned Madness. The Suggs, obviously, and Paul Weller had a single out in summer together. Obviously, they're really good mates. I don't know if you heard them interviewed on the Zoe Ball breakfast show together. It was absolutely hilarious. I think Paul had just come off the school run. Obviously, it's a breakfast show. Paul had just come off the school run. I think Suggs had just come in from the pub. <laughs> it was wonderful. And he's an, an amazing character, but it, it must be a real honour, I guess but also a real joy to play with that band because they put on an amazing show but they have such an amazing set of songs yes they do um they're one of those bands that you go and see and hit after hit and you and they're hits that you'd forgotten some yeah. time you know they do rest some and bring in others every now and then which is a, a great thing to do which keeps everything fresh keeps them interested which therefore keeps the audience interested it's great it is great to play those all those tunes with them and they also the thing that i also like is that they are the band are very down to earth people. They'll always just have a chat. You know, I won't maybe see them, say Mike Barson from one year to the next. And then when you do, he'll just have a quiet word with you on the, aside from everything else and not part of the excuse the word madness. You know, they're a great bunch of people to be with on several levels. And I, I work a lot with, um, with Bedders. You know, he's in the near jazz experience with, yeah, it's a three piece through us together. He was my best man at my wedding a couple of months ago. So. Oh, nice. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> but the thing is, they get you to do some bonkers things at times, though. What, remind me of the Parkinson thing. <laughs> Tomo, Lee, Lee Thompson has um, gone off to live in Australia for six months. he just done a house swap with someone and just, just went off. Oh, how lovely. Fabulous idea. Nice. And, uh, yeah, they had to do something, so they got me in to be him. And um, Lee and Chris are approximately the same height, and I'm slightly taller. Not, I'm not. You know, I'm not very tall. <laughs> um, and he was just going, you're, uh, you're too tall. You should, you know, they, and the Toulouse-Lautrec thing came up. That you should be like Toulouse-Lautrec. So there I was on my knees and, and it was live. I was actually playing the saxophone down there. <laughs> dressed as Toulouse-Lautrec on your, on your knees. On my knees. And, and better said to me, you know, if you, if it's uncomfortable, you don't have to do this. Don't, don't, you know, if you can't play kneeling down like that. But that was fine. The funny thing was that at the time, the um, BBC props department, they could get hold of costumes quite easily, which I don't think they can anymore because everything's been bloody siphoned off and privatized, you know, but they got a, they faxed through an image of what to lose the Trek war, and they sourced a very similar costume. It's not a million miles from from what he would have worn, <laughs> you know. So, so, uh, and I had the <laughs> had the, had a beard sort of um, glued to my face and everything, and I was having this makeup put on, and Michael Parkinson came into the makeup, <laughs> you know. And this is, you know, I'm just this bloke from Essex, you know. I'm not <laughs> thinking this is the man I used to see every night on the in the seventies, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh sorry, every Saturday night, and, and I said, uh, "Well, it's very nice to meet you. I hope it might have been under slightly different circumstances." <laughs> and he and he just went, "I think it's brilliant." <laughs> <laughs> Rhoda Dakar, you talked about um, and Black Barn and being down there. She was great on the 
the podcast and these singles that she's doing these covers in her style her versioning of things like every day is like sunday on beautiful green seven inch vinyl for goodness sake is a really nice project to be involved in so are you officially part of her band i am the first cool sax player or so yeah. she tells me so yes i've been playing with her for quite a few years and obviously the stuff we did at black barn was pre-covid so we could all get in the studio together and the and the covers album was actually done in lockdowns and things so hence the um Hence her slight change of the lyric in Every Day's Like Sunday. I've not spotted that. What's the town that they forgot to lock down? Ah. The town they forgot to close down. Nice. I didn't spot that. Nice. And so I did the horns at home in my little... And what, you're like emailing them over, are you? Yeah. And then Lenny is the producer and mixer on on these things. He's he's great. Lenny Bignan. Uh, so yeah, just send the files over to him. But uh, I was very pleased to um, to sneak a little quote in at the end of that tune, which was from Free Nelson Mandela. It's slightly slower. I put that little melody. Nice, nice. Play out, you know. And did you explain on the email that that was what you'd done, or did you just send it over and see if she'd notice? I just sent it over. I mean, it's amazing that technology meant that people during that period, which was horrendous, and musicians like yourself couldn't gig and earn a living doing what you love doing. But actually, you could create music together. And Paul creating the Fat Pop album in that same way with his band members. Mm -hmm. The fact you can create these files in your bedroom and then email them over, and people are building it uh, as collages on Adobe or Pro Tools. It's it's a remarkable thing, isn't it? It's great. Also, I think it it helped people get quite creative in things. So, for instance, with the we've nearly finished a new Near Jazz Experience album, but that's based largely on us being the three of us being in separate places but uh simon drummer he works he programs events at um a cinema in st leonard's on sea he lives on the south coast so of course they couldn't open the cinema um he just set his drum kit up in the front of it he would go in every day practice record some of the drum patterns and things on his iphone send them to us mark might take one of them i'd take we there's lots of them so we just created little bits and pieces and when we could then go out and and play it was a great place to actually write and rehearse we went down every couple once every couple of weeks to the cinema which still couldn't be open but you could do work if you couldn't do it anywhere else and right. and we literally couldn't and we were very well spaced out <laughs> between the three of us and we managed to write some write a new album which we've just managed to uh almost put to bed as we speak it's it's almost oh, there. Fabulous. but there's another way of working you know which we we wouldn't have done if, if that if we hadn't had those restrictions in adversity you find creativity and new ways yeah, of doing absolutely. things and, yeah. and really got us firing off thinking different ways and coming out with some some new music so that's that's really refreshing and when will we get to hear that um i think we should have that out april ish right oh, well we'll keep an eye on that and we'll we'll share that when it comes around. Hey, look, man, this has been so lovely chatting with you. I've loved spending time in your company. I have two final questions for you before you go, okay? I've got one for you, though. What's that gold disc over your shoulder that I can see? On this? <laughs> Let me go and get this. So. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there'd be a story behind it. Just to make you laugh. So this here... <laughs> This is a very good bit for radio. (laughs) This here is a framed gold disc, all right? So you're wondering what I've performed on, aren't you, see? How many millions of copies I've sold. Uh, This is, this was created by a friend of the podcast, Steve Wheatley, bless him, who when Anne Weller was on, can you read that there? Yes, I can, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Anne Weller, episode 100, 
podcast centenary celebration, Desperately Seeking Paul, Paul Weller fan podcast, number one, Great Britain podcast charts. And that was Anne Weller, who was episode 100, Paul's mum. And he created like a gold disc. And there were only two of these in existence, one for me and one for Anne Weller. How lovely. And I gather it's on the stairs with all of Paul Weller's gold discs. <laughs> I'm glad I asked then. Oh, I'm glad you did as well. I forgot that was there. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's a blessing for doing that. But it was, fun. yeah, really a nice surprise and a really funny story. But she was a fabulous guest. Love that. Bless her. And, and lives in Ripley. So she lives just over the road from the studio as well. So. Okay. Nice connection. Good question, Terry. Right. Two, fi- two final questions for you before you go. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the star council or solo. What are you going to go with? You're the best thing that ever happened. Ah, so you mentioned that the star council were your band. You weren't kidding me, right? <laughs> Why yeah. that one? Uh, I'm terribly sentimental. It's a lovely song. <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful song. Right. Now, purpose of this podcast is to talk to lovely people like yourself who have had these either fleeting connections with Paul, played on a couple of songs, just big fans whatever it is um, I love hearing your stories so thank you for joining me but I've got to be honest uh, the purpose of the podcast is for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio <laughs> career so if it happens I mean you're like a, you, you're lovely but you're like a stepping stone to that interview with Paul right <laughs> if it happens what should I ask him uh, oh god that's a, <laughs> that's a blank sheet of paper isn't it it's, <laughs> it's not easy to edit a blank sheet of paper I was going to be flippant and say, when are you going to get Terry Edwards on the unit on another album? <laughs> um, so that's the flippant question. <laughs> Actually, I think what would be a good amuso question, um, because he's, you know, his, his voice and his lyrics and his songs are very much what you think of with Paul is, I would ask him who his favorite guitarists are, instrumentalists. Oh, right. Okay. I think I would ask him a, a muso type question like that. I've never seen him ask that before either. You seem like favorite musician or favorite uh, singer, and he talks about the Beatles and st- uh, Small Faces and all that a lot. Because as a guitarist, what I always really the thing that I looked at often was, was one guitarist bands. You know, so that that interested me. I know you can do loads of stuff in the studio and everything, but um, Led Zeppelin, The Who, The Jam, bands that have one guitarist, you have to play lead and rhythm. Mm. At the same time, kind of thing. So I think he'd be quite be quite interesting to find out who he likes on guitar. That could go anywhere. Yeah, and it'd be a real surprise if he said Eric Clapton, right? <laughs> <laughs> nice question. Hey, Terry, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. Good luck with what's next. Share the details of the album and that, and we'll we'll make sure we share that on social media and stuff. Sure. But thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. My thanks once again to Terry Edwards. What a lovely fella. Head to my website for the show notes to this podcast episode, including links to some of the songs that we talked about and plenty of Terry's music, including a Spotify playlist that I've put together as well. It's all there paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, you can show your support for the podcast by heading to my store. We have exclusive merchandise, including our official podcast mug, and you can buy a virtual coffee as well. On the roll call for doing that this week, Phil Baker, who says Bill Wheeler's podcast was brilliant. Keep up the great work, Dan. Thank you, Philip. Hi to Mary G, says keep going strong. Brilliant guest, brilliant podcast. Thank you, Mary. Hi to Dean Parkinson. Says, always enjoy your shows, Dan. Thank you. It'll be great to get Mr. Craddock on at some stage and Marco Nelson if you can. Hey, fellas, if you're listening, get in touch. Yes, I'd love to have you on. Alex McLaughlin says, Happy New Year, Dan. Thank you, Alex, for your support as well. This one's from Ian Hamilton. Says, thanks, Dan. These have given me a lot of enjoyment over the last couple of years. Has it really been that long? Wow. Hi to Mal, says all the best from Newcastle, Dan. What a fantastic picture you and all the guests paint. It's a real gift and helps me escape from the rat race for just a little while. 
Thank you, Mal. Thanks to all of you for your support. Head to my website, grab a virtual coffee, and I'll give you a shout out next week. Don't forget, make sure you follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. You can find me on social media as well. Do spread the word. Get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.